Renaissance Church exists to help see disciples built up uh, so that they become men and women who inspire and invite others to love and serve Jesus together. That's what our mission is as a church. Every one of you, everyone, no matter where you are in faith, can grow a bit. And our hope is that for being here with us this morning, that you will grow, that you'll find yourself built up for the mission that God has for you in the world. We are studying the book of James together. James is a book that is like a refiner's fire. It has the capacity, especially in the questions which James raises, to burn away those things in us, those impurities that keep us from being who God made us to be. Most of us will know there are parts of our character, our behavior, our attitudes, and our actions that need to change. And this book has the potential to be an instrument which God uses to do that. And that's why we're in the book of James. And we're considering these burning questions in hopes of of seeing God change us. So whatever measure you have in your mind now of your own need to change, let that emerge and pray and hope now that God will change you through what we do this morning together. Every one of us needs changing. At some point in life, every single one of us in here is going to face a moment of crisis that is going to be rooted in the question of identity. You're going to be facing circumstances that are going to make you ask, who am I after all? Have some of you a vivid memory of a moment like that in life where that question was thrown up for you? Yeah, at Christmas time, I met with a friend downstairs in Winberry's right before the Christmas concert, and I asked him, how's it going? And he said, not good, which was extremely unusual because this is a guy who's always doing well. Last week, I was fired, he told me. Now, you might think, oh boy, how's he going to buy Christmas gifts? This is going to be a real challenge. How's he going to support his family? He must be anxious about that. For him, it had nothing to do with finances. This is a friend who had built a massive company, which two years earlier had been purchased by a private equity firm whose goal was to triple the size of the company. It had already doubled in size. He retained half of the ownership, and that kept going even after being let go. They had put him on as the CEO when the company was purchased. He wanted to move the growth forward faster than they did, and so they found a reason to let him go. And he told me, I don't have to go to work for the first time in many years. To me, it sounded like a dream. (laughs) And then he looked at me and he said, if I'm not the CEO of the company that I put so much time and effort into building, who am I? And that was way more unsettling to him than anything else in this complex experience for him. And I know this. I'm absolutely sure of it. If you have never experienced the shift in life's circumstances where drastically and suddenly you are asking, who am I? If you've never experienced that, I promise you that at some point you will. Especially those of us who are older know that things shift suddenly and the changes are difficult, but what makes it especially hard is that the way that you used to understand your identity is pulled away from you, so now all of the security and comfort that came with the familiar trappings go away and you're left wondering, who is this person that I'm looking at in the mirror after all? That's the question that James is going to teach us to address this morning. The question, who am I? For every eighth grader who's a part of our church, right now anxiety is on the rise, not just because 
they're anticipating challenges in the ninth grade, but because it's going to force them to ask the question again, who am I? Because they're not the oldest kid in the school anymore. They're not the one that everybody understands and knows. They're not the one that the teacher says hi to. And so the big challenge is going to be walking down those halls with the question, who am I? And the same for college students when they go off. That question becomes a real question. Who is this person if I'm no longer the, 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 the person that everybody understands or knows in Summit High School or Madison or wherever I am. It happens when things change in a good way, in a bad way too. A sports star injures his leg. He used to be the goalie for the hockey team. Everybody at school knew and loved him for that and now he's sitting on the bench and it's not just the loss of the games but it's the question, who am I? It happens when your kids come along and you have to stop being the person who manages that team at work that oversees all those divisions and now you're just sitting there staring at a one-year-old that's when it happens right it happens when when the kids go off to college and now it's just you or the two of you there at home and you're you're having to ask again who who am i now that this shift has happened it happens when the church that you've invested yourself in over the years changes and you're not sure how you fit in Now you're asking, who am I? And this experience is universal because, very simply, it is our social structures. And then the relationship between where we find ourselves and how we tend to form our identities that often answers the question for us. In every social setting in which you pass your time, there will be a groove carved out for you into which you're going to roll along that is going to try to answer the question for you And what I want you to see this morning is that the question of who you are is actually a question that can only be answered by God himself. And I want to show you his answers especially. That's the thing I'm most excited about this morning. I want you to look at the observation that's up here on the screen. What else is the whole life of mortals but a sort of comedy in which the various actors disguised by various costumes and masks walk on and play each one his part until the manager waves them off the stage. We live like we are on stage all the time, trying to be the person that our surroundings pressure us into becoming. When we're little, it's our parents' expectations and desires for us that give us the cue and hand us the script that we read. When our children are little, it is the pressure from our own parents or our peers who are raising their children in this way rather than that way that give us the sheets for how we're supposed to be as parents. And so on it goes all through life so that each and every one of us finds ourselves at some points realizing I'm hiding behind a mask that has been crafted for me by all of the people around me. All the world's a stage and men and women are merely players. Do you know that quote? That was Shakespeare inspired by Erasmus who wrote this one. Erasmus, the great northern renaissance scholar who spent enough time with people and especially in churches to observe that people tend to live as if they're on stage wearing masks and the experience over time is so profoundly identity shaping that eventually we have a hard time distinguishing between the real person and the mask itself. Do any of you know this from experience? Is it surprising to you to learn that the word person in Latin, persona, means mask? That's where the word actually comes from. In 1981, the Canadian rock phenomenon Rush took this even further forward with limelight. 
Anybody? I really appreciate those chuckles. Listen now. This is what we need, all of us. We need someone to come onto this stage where we're all playing and to whisper into our ears, it's okay to take the mask off. We need the one who knows who we are better than we know ourselves to come and say, this is not you. And as long as you go on trying to be this other person, you are never going to be the uniquely beautiful and powerful and wonderful and joyful and effective human being that I myself made you to be. We need someone to say, stop listening to the cues that come from that person or this community or that group. Don't listen anymore. It's ruining you from the inside out. Let me whisper into your ear who you are and then you take that mask off and then I will, like a refiner's fire, burn away all of the dross and craft you into something absolutely magnificent so that you shine my light in the world and you are walking one step after the other as the creature that I made you to be. We need God to tell us who we are. And as long as we don't listen now, and this is a big statement, but I'm going to make it, every single destructive behavior for us and the people around us at its roots comes down to a mistake in answering this question, who am I? That's why we walk away from God, because we have the wrong idea of who we are. It's why we hurt others and ourselves, because we don't know yet who we are. And all throughout the New Testament, when you see conflicts arising in the original communities of faith in one way or another, the problem is an identity issue problem. It's the person who began to believe, I am the CEO who built this company, who maybe needs to know that's not who you are. Do that. Thrive. Be the best CEO you can. Become a CEO of five other companies. That's magnificent. But never make the mistake of thinking that's who you are because when you do, then you'll be on the wrong path and all kinds of negative things will flow out of you when you have the wrong idea about who you are. There is a development in the communities that James writes to, a problem in those churches, which at first glance may seem like something that just needs to be corrected by saying, hey, don't do that anymore. But instead at its heart, is rooted in identity issues. Look at James chapter 4, verse 11. Here's what James writes. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Now, this is written to churches. The churches to which James wrote were comprised of people who sometimes spoke against one another. These two friends in church talked about this third friend who also goes to church, but not when he was around. This small group who's really involved in the community of faith and spends lots of time together, they have conversations often complaining about another group who's also in the church. Slander is the precise meaning of the word which is rendered evil up there. That's what James has in mind. The kind of lies which are spread and compromise a person's reputation. It happens in every church. People who follow Jesus as best they can talk bad about one another. Do you know this? Some of you don't want to nod too hard because you do it. I'm serious. And, and we should not let these burning questions burn away the heart of who we are, but those behaviors that aren't as they should be. James offers three reasons why this should not be what happens in communities of faith. Look carefully. First, Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. God gave his law, which in Hebrew 
Torah means way. God gave his way to guide and help us to find true life. The right relationship between you and God's law is trust and obedience. You hear and then do what you hear. But when you slander another person, according to James, you also slander the law and you cannot do what you are slandering at the same time. In parallel with slander, James uses the term judges. You see it twice there. In Greek, the word is krino, which means in effect to sunder or divide up. That's what it literally means, to tear apart, to separate into distinctive categories. When you slander someone, you are judging them by tearing them apart from yourself, dividing them into a category different than the one you put yourself in. You make them a them, and you put yourself in the us category. How often do you find yourself doing this if you're honest with yourself? They do this. Do you know what they decided? It's them over there. In doing this, according to James, you also judge and sunder, tear apart the law because, listen now, the law tells you to love others as you love yourself. To receive others with grace, which is just how you want to be received and need to be received. Even with all of their shortcomings, to be kind and gentle with the people around you. Because don't you have some shortcomings that require kindness? That's the first reason why James says, don't judge. Look at the second one. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Oh, this is so simple. God wants you to do the law. Again, think of it as a way. God wants you to walk on the way. And it is not possible to walk on the way while you're trying to judge the law. You cannot do both at the same time. The moment you become a judge of other people, you stop being a doer of God's word. It's like a kid in a soccer game who gets upset at the call and stops playing and begins to behave as if he's the referee. Have you ever seen it? Complaining about the call and looking at the ref and being incensed now he's not in the game anymore and the opponent runs off with the ball. God wants you not to be a referee, but to be a player in the game. You cannot be a referee and a player at the same time. God made you to do his word in the world and not to become a judge of others and by extension to judge his word. That's the second reason not to do it. Now, if all this was was a behavior that needed to be corrected, James would next say, Stop judging, and that's all he would say. But he doesn't say that. What he does is he points to the fact that at heart, this is an identity issue. And I want you to grasp this again. There are many things that you experience in life right now that are miserable, where you find yourself pulled in this direction or that. And you can't make things work out, and you keep trying to, to address the symptoms. But I'm telling you this morning, the problem has to do with the true you who's down beneath the mask that you've been convinced to wear at home, at school, at work, even at church. And what you need is to be putting to yourself the question, who actually am I? Look at how James uh, brings up this third point. This is verse 12. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Here's the question. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? The heart of the matter, the issue beneath the wrong behavior is a misunderstanding about identity. The person who slanders and judges his brother behaves as if he is someone who he is not. 
He's wearing the mask of a judge, but that doesn't make him the judge. There is only one judge. There is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, and none of you, none of you, I am not the lawgiver or the judge. And so the moment I begin to act as if I am by judging and slandering the people around me, my problem is that I'm wearing a mask on this stage that I'm not meant to mask because it's not where, it's not who I am. The problem is an identity issue, which is why James ends his treatment of this problem, this one problem within the church, with the question, so who then are you? And you can apply this question to all of the things that you experience together in the community of faith or at work or at home or with your family that grind your soul down rather than build it up. You can look at what's happening and say, ah, the problem here is deep down beneath that kind of behavior is a misunderstanding about identity. Who, after all, does the person who acts like I'm the one that they're supposed to judge believe they are? That's the line of thinking that James wants us to be on. And you can do it with many other things. Here, let me give you a few examples. Every time you harp on the people around you trying to manage their behaviors and the outcome for them, trying to push them to be the person that you want them to be, trying to control them, what you need is to have the question put to you, who are you then to control your neighbor? Do you think that you're their Lord? Now some of you right now are thinking about your spouse who always is criticizing you and trying to control you. Stop thinking about your spouse. But who are you is the question for the person who's always trying to control others because the truth is God didn't make you to control people. Or maybe there's a different issue for you. Maybe you're that person who even though you hear inspiring things when you come to church about the plans that God has for you, you're that person who says, there is no reason for me to hope for anything good from me. I'm just going to coast along and never try uh, to find out how I can become an agent for positive change in the world. Why would I ever expect anything especially good from me? After all, look at all these failures behind me. I'm just going to coast along. I'm a passive object from now on. I'm going to let my circumstances move me from one gray day to another. And you need the question put to you, who then are you to have such low expectations of yourself, of the one who God made in his image? Who are you to look at yourself like that? It's an identity issue. Do you see it? Maybe you're not like that. You're the person who thinks you're the best thing since sliced bread. Why, why is sliced bread such a good thing? Can't we pick something better than that? Maybe you think so highly of yourself. Listen, because you've learned how to elicit positive feedback from your chosen reference group. Maybe you're the CEO of 10 companies and you look and you say, there's nothing in my life that I need because I am so perfect. Because I've learned to get praise from my peers and I don't want to minimize anyone who's got those kinds of accomplishments. Those, by the way, put you in a position of great responsibility in the world which needs people with your power. But what needs to be put to you is the question, who then are you to let your success define yourself? And this you ought to ask because Many of us know it can be taken away like that. The fact is, beneath all striving and every endeavor, please get this in your mind, which takes you off in the wrong direction away from God, is the wrong idea about who you are. Whether it's slandering or gossiping or judging each other in the church or trying to control people or wasting your potential because you feel worthless or putting too much stock in the opinions of others and the accomplishments that make your peers impressed, the wrong outcomes are rooted in the wrong self-understanding. Now, if that's true, do you see that the opposite is also true? 
That is to understand your true self in the way that God made you is the best thing for you. It's the thing that will put you off in the right direction. Do you see it? And there are instances and examples of this that are surprising in life. Those moments where someone feels no pressure to manage their appearance is just down to earth who they actually are. As if they've sort of lost sight of the stage on which they're supposed to be performing where they sparkle and they burn brilliantly because they're so unselfconscious. Have you ever seen a moment like that for someone? Uh, my wife, Michelle, recounts this story. After graduating from college with a teaching degree, uh, she began to put out her resume and go to job interviews. Don't you know this? There's no environment like a job interview to make you put a mask on. Yes? A friend reached out to her, hey, there's a, a job opportunity at a classical Christian school. It's a great educational environment. It was a kindergarten teacher. Michelle wasn't interested in that. But her friend said, why not just bring your resume and drop it by anyway? You can meet a few folks. So why not? She went over to the school with the resume in hand, equipped with her jeans and T-shirt. And there, her friend said, come in for a moment. There are some folks who want to meet you. Brought her into the room where they're around the table are teachers, administrators, an HR person, and the principal of the school who want to ask her some questions about what she thinks about teaching and her philosophy of education. Can you see what it is yet happening here? Michelle didn't see. <laughs> she just casually rattles off her philosophy of education, how she approaches teaching, what she thinks about the administrative process in general in school. She's riffing as at ease as she could possibly be. Oh, wow, she's thinking, how amazing. This is such a cool place. They wanted to meet little old me for no reason. She gets in her car, and as she's driving home, the phone call comes. They want to offer you a different job, a one that's perfect for you, because you're so confident and self-assured. And, and, and confident just in who you are. Do you see it? How do we get there? How do we get to the place where we can be ourselves and therefore, and this is the key, therefore the people who God can use in the way that he means to. I want you to think with me for a moment about the author of our book, James. We can start with him to get a sense for how identity ought to work. I mentioned this in the first message in this series, that James was the brother of Jesus. Do some of you remember that? And I rattled that off with such ease and confidence. What I didn't tell you is that for generations there have been real conflicts among scholars as to whether this book could have actually been written by the brother of Jesus. And there are a lot of reasons why people argue about that. There are other James that are identified in the Bible. Uh, there are reasons to look at his book, especially in Greek, and say it doesn't seem like the kind of writing that could have come from the brother of Jesus whose father was just an ordinary carpenter in Nazareth. It's far too educated for that. It seems that the grasp of the Torah that this man has would be far beyond someone who didn't grow up with the kind of education that a brother of Jesus could never have grown up with. All of these and many other reasons are listed as to why it could not possibly have been the brother of Jesus. I also maybe mentioned, and you perhaps picked up on this, that James, Jesus' brother, happens to be the leader of the first church in Jerusalem, the one that was in fact the first megachurch in history. Do you know that? It grew by thousands. And the real reason why scholars say it couldn't have been Jesus' brother is a simple fact that nowhere in his book does James ever say that he is the brother of Jesus. And after all, if you were related to Jesus... 
You got it already, right? And if you were trying to convince people in churches to listen to you, wouldn't you tell them that I, do you remember who I am? I'm the first, and he never does that. And so the argument goes, obviously he can't be Jesus' brother. But I think that is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be related to Jesus as a true follower. And I'll tell you why. The moment you decide to give yourself to Jesus in faith, all of those accomplishments behind you stop meaning anything at all to you, really. You, you're no longer a woman who's always trying to prove herself by what she's accomplished. You give up on that because you don't care. You're no longer a man who's eager to tell everybody you meet who you also know and what you've done that's good in the world and why they should be impressed with you because you've left that way of defining yourself behind you because now that you're a companion of Jesus, nothing could matter less to you anymore than all of that. What matters most to you in this moment is being the man or the woman that Jesus Christ himself tells you in his grace who you are. If you have never decided to give your heart fully to Jesus Christ in faith, if you've never come to the point where you've said, I am a sinner lost altogether in need of God's grace, and unless I give myself to God in Christ in faith, I will never live. If you've never come to the place where you've felt that, you should come to that place right now, and you should cry out in your heart to God, say, God, would you rescue me from myself, from this present and the future apart from you, by calling me your son or daughter in this very moment. The instant you do that, then like James, you become someone who couldn't care less who you're related to or what you've accomplished. And instead, as James does in the very first verse of his book, you identify yourself differently. Look at how the book opens. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. It's so inauspicious and humble he looks at himself and answers the question, who am I? With these two words, a servant. And that's not a designation which causes him to feel down, but it defines his identity so that each day as he walks through life, he says, I am a servant. And then he lives like it. And I want you to understand this. The more of, of you and, and, and the more that I am able to look at myself and stop pretending I'm the person that my stage manager tells me I'm supposed to be with a mask. And the more I look instead and say, this is who I am, I'm a servant. You know, James said that because his brother Jesus, who was the Lord of heaven and earth, became great by humbling himself and serving others. And so James saw that, and two things, he knew that rescued me so that I can have the life that I have now, and it also gives me an idea for how I should walk through life. By looking at myself and answering the question, who am I? as a servant. Try on this self-understanding today, Sunday, June 2nd. Try it later on. And when someone is like, would you go do that thing? Instead of fussing, you're going to say, I'm a servant. Yes, and I'll gladly do it. That's what you should do today. Now, what about tomorrow? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I've got one answer to this question from God's word for you for every day of the week because you need it tomorrow. Tomorrow, when you wake up and you lose the buzz of how wonderful it was to be with God's people on Sunday, and the week begins for you, and you think, oh, who am I? Here's the answer for Monday. You are beloved. That's who you are. And that's what God, God's word declares about you. It's not my opinion. 
It's what God says about you. Because God gave himself in Jesus Christ without any strings attached to save you from sin and death. And and the Bible says emphatically that the motivating force for God to do that was his love of every one of you. Then the truth about you is that you are beloved. Look at how one disciple put it. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. On Monday, you're going to look at yourself and you're going to remember God's word from Galatians and you're going to say, God loved me and gave himself for me. I am beloved. Monday evening, when you've forgotten that and you start becoming a rascal. And so on Tuesday morning, you wake up and you say, I I messed up yesterday. Here's what you're going to say on Tuesday. I am forgiven because that's who you are. Followers of Christ are those people who are beloved but then forgiven. Listen to how the poet puts it in Psalm 103. Oh gosh, this is magnificent. Anyone in here who wonders if she will do something that will make God's love for her run out needs to commit this one to her heart. And you should memorize this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. You are forgiven. In God's grace, you are forgiven. And on Tuesday, once you've got that in your heart, and you accept it, now you are not going to make the mistake that so many religious people make, which is to think, I'm beloved, I'm forgiven, and then from now on, doesn't matter what I do, because when I die, I go to heaven, and for the rest of my life, who cares? That is an absolute and utter offense to the God who gave his life for you in Christ, because he loves you and forgave you because you are made for good, and that's what you're going to learn in your heart on Wednesday. That's why God saved you and delivered you. He made you on purpose for good. In Ephesians, it's put with crystal clarity when Paul says, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This comes right after the most profoundly beautiful exposition of salvation by grace through faith and not works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, 10 to tell you that you were made for good. And if you think to yourself, I don't know what the good is that I'm supposed to do. Don't go looking for it until you internalize on Wednesday that that's who you are. You're made for good. Okay, now you're thinking, is he going to tell us on Thursday something about, yes, I am. (laughs) Because on Thursday, when you stumble along and haven't yet figured out what the good is that you're made for, you're going to tell yourself, I am under construction. It's true of every one of us. If you know a Christian person who is so self-assured that it seems that they believe they have nothing to learn and nowhere to improve, it's likely that God himself can't even help them because they need to internalize the truth, which you are free now to internalize that at every step of the way you're under construction. Paul, who wrote a good deal of the New Testament, said it this way in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own. That's his way of saying, I'm under construction because, and this is why, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You belong to Jesus. He made you his own when he died for you. He purchased you, and he purchased you 
to be at work on you, to be constructing you. And on Thursday, you're still being made by him. I am too. And that's who you are. Beloved, forgiven, made for good, under construction. And if you decide Thursday afternoon, I'm done with God, and you try to run away from him, and you might do that because Friday is like the most sinful day of the week, I think. <laughs> In the morning, this is the truth. You're never forsaken. Never. This is straight out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He told the gathering of disciples in the resurrection this truth, and in that group, there was a mixture of opinion about Jesus. They worshiped him, but some doubted, it says at the end of Matthew. There were people who were there who still had big doubts, and Jesus told them, don't forget this, I will never, ever forsake you. And if it was true for them, it's true for every single one of us here. Now listen, you're not just going to say, Jesus won't forsake me. You're going to say, I am never forsaken. That's who you are. That's what the scriptures tell us. That's how the, God, the word of God comes. And if you were here last week, you heard me promise this. That's how it comes and is planted in our hearts so that it saves our souls. James says that in 121. If you would welcome with meekness and humility the implanted word of God, it will save your souls. And I've given you these five. Here's the last one. And this is what you're going to say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You are a child of God. That's who you are. Look at this brilliant and beautiful declaration of the truth. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And that makes a declaration about us. And it's specific. That not automatically by virtue of just existing, but in Christ Jesus. That means because Christ gave his life for all. We, in in that act of his are children of God. This last two words, through faith, means that you live as a child when you trust. That's who you are. You're a child, so trust. Put, put them all up together now. If you have a phone and you want to take a picture, if you want to make sure you get this list down, this is your work for this week. And James invites us to t- take responsibility for our work. It is each day in the morning and the evening to tell ourselves who we are according to God's word, to say, I'm beloved, I'm forgiven, I'm made for good, I'm under construction, I'm never forsaken, I'm a child of God, because that's who God says I am. Let's pray together. God, we love you, and we thank you for your servant, James. We thank you even in the way he identified himself that he was teaching us how we are invited to see ourselves. Not as not as the sum of all of our accomplishments or the people that we know or the things that we think we've done well, not, thank goodness, as the weight of all of our failures and the things where we've gone wrong, the sins that we're guilty of and ashamed of. None of those things are who we are. What we ask now as we sing is that you would impress upon us the reality of who we are through song. And in our hearts the seeds that have been planted this morning through your word would grow and that they would in fact save our souls and we ask for this in Jesus' name.